So, this is Bhagavad Gita as it is, the translation of purports are by Srila Prabhupada. There's an interesting paragraph in the Bhagavad Gita. Gita is divided into chapters, adhyayas, but actually those chapters are also divided into paragraphs, which are not visible, uh, but they're there. I mean, they actually are different um, topics which constitute paragraphs. So, there's an interesting discussion uh, in chapter 18, texts uh, 13 through 17. Those uh, five verses. So I'll read those uh, five verses. It's an interesting topic that Lord Krishna goes over regarding uh, what we call false ego, or egoism. Uh, Krishna begins in text 13 saying, Panchaitani Mahabaho Karanani Nivodhame Samke Kritante Pratani Siddhaye Sarva Karmana. Translation. Almighty Arnda Arjuna, according to the Vedanta, uh, literally, I think what Krishna says is Samke in Samkhya philosophy. There are five causes for the accomplishment or the success of all action. Now learn of these from me. Prabhupada's purport, a question may be raised that since any activity performed must have some reaction, how is it that the person in Krishna consciousness does not suffer or enjoy the reactions of work? The Lord decided Vedanta philosophy, Sankhya philosophy, to show how this is possible. He says that there are five causes for all activities, and for success in all activity, one should consider these five causes. Samkhya means the stock of knowledge, and Vedanta is the final stock of knowledge, accepted by all the Dinacharyas. Even Shankara accepts Vedanta Sutra as such, therefore such authority should be consulted. The ultimate control is invested in the Supersoul. As it is stated in the Bhagavad Gita, he is engaging everyone in certain activities by reminding him of his past actions. And Krishna conscious acts done under his direction from within the yield. No reaction either in this life or in the life after death. So, Lord Krishna here says, Panchayitani, uh, these five, Mahabhava Arjuna, Karanani, five causes. Krishna calls these Karanani. Five causes. Nibodhame, learn from me. Sankhya. Uh, in Sankhya, yeah, in the context of the Bhagavad Gita, you have the two terms Sankhya and Yoga, which are something like in English philosophy and practice. And these two terms are introduced in the Bhagavad Gita in chapter 2, text 39. Uh, chapter 2 is very important. Lord Krishna uh, lays out the basic philosophy of life of the soul. In chapter 2, uh, Krishna divides chapter 2 into two parts. And the verse in which the chapter, so to speak, pivots, or the divide between the first part of the chapter and the second part, is in text 39, where Krishna says, um, uh, 
not the exact Sanskrit, but I'll have it for you in a second. Esha te vihita sankhe, Luthir joge vimantre. Krishna says that what I've now explained to you, what has been described, is muti, or discernment, spiritual discernment, spiritual intelligence. Sankhe, in a in philosophical sense. And then, once you hear it now, in the practical sense. In other words, it's philosophy and the application of the philosophy, philosophy and practice. So Krishna introduces that terminology, Sankhya and Yoga, in the middle of the second chapter. And uh, Arjuna misunderstands these terms. And this is one of his first... Uh, because Arjuna, in a sense, is predisposed. Arjuna is predisposed to get up the battle. He's a warrior, he's on a battlefield, and he thinks, I don't, I don't want to do this particular battle. Uh, for various reasons, he wanted to flee the battlefield, and therefore, Arjuna interpreted this distinction between Sankhya and Yoga, philosophy and practice, as entailing somehow a distinction between giving up one's normal societal duties, and, or performing it. So Arjuna took it to mean that um, Sankhya, if one gets really philosophical about life and focuses on the soul and the eternal, at that point you give up your normal duties and go off somewhere for secluded life. Now there were actually people doing that in India at the time, by the way. This is something we talked about in a class over at the university. There was a movement, actually. There's always been a movement. There, always, there were certain people, uh, scholars called the Shramana movement. Shramana basically means for knocking yourself out. But they, would, they would go off into the forest or into the wilderness because India was full of wilderness back then. It wasn't like now. And um, they would sort of attend to their own spiritual improvement through meditation, through austerities, and so on. And basically... Forget the world. Leave the world behind. And uh, so this existed. This was actually there in the uh, cultural landscape of India back then. And so Arjun was uh, basically informed Krishna, well, Krishna, I think I'm out of here. So Arjun took Sankhya in that sense that one should make critical distinctions between the body and the soul spirit and matter, and understanding oneself to be an eternal soul, one should give up the material, physically give up the material life, and just go off into the wilderness somewhere. And yoga, Arjuna took to mean uh, the application, practice. So anyway, uh, so Arjuna is sort of confused about this philosophy and practice. Practice maybe meant staying in the world and just doing some kind of karma yoga somehow trying to spiritualize your normal life. So, Krishna pointed out in response to Arjuna, Arjuna tried to um, take advantage of this language in order to justify his purpose, which was to leave the battlefield. So, in chapter 5, Krishna said that Krishna 
Krishna told Arjuna that there's no, uh, only literally the childish, Bala, Bala means child in Sanskrit, Bala Krishna. So it's also used to mean immature or childish, the way we say childish. So Krishna said only the childish claim, Pravadanti, that Sankhya Yoga are different. That Sankhya Yoga are different. And, Ekamapyasi uh, said because if you practice one, Properly, you get the results of both. In other words, to really understand the soul means that one still has to act in the world. Because souls have to act in the world. After all, Krishna says, if all the intelligent people abandon the world, who will set the proper example? And so, anyway, uh, here, Krishna again uses this word, Sankhya. So this word pops up again in chapter 18, where Krishna says that Sankhya, in philosophy, where it probably translates it in Vedanta, uh, he said, learn from me, there are five causes, five causes, five reasons why things happen in the world. And why is Krishna talking about this? Well, you'll, you'll see as we... If I ever get off this first verse and go to the next ones, you'll eventually find out. So, and then Krishna says, Sankhya Kritante, which Kritante means at the end, ante, at the end of a krita, something which is done, at the end of a deed. In other words, once something is done, if you look back on it, you can see that there were actually five causes. So, uh, and Krishna says that these five causes are declared or, or, or stated to be, to exist, siddhaye, for the accomplishment or for the success, sarva karmana, of all actions. In every action, the success depends upon these five factors. So what's Krishna getting at? Well, first he'll describe what these five factors are. He says, adhishtana, so first is Adhishtana, the place. For example, if you want to make a lot of money and uh, in retail and you move to Williston, Florida, that probably won't happen. So there's a reason why people that say they want to make money in certain ways move to big cities. That's why houses cost more. That's why uh, commercial locations cost more in big cities because there's more money to be made in certain kinds of businesses. Or, for example, let's say you want to get some kind of college degree, so you go to a place where there's a college. So the place, if you want to, let's say, improve your health, you may go to a place that has the appropriate climate for your purpose. So, the place, whatever you want to do, the place is a factor. And then Krishna says, karata, there's the doer, the agent, the person that's actually carrying out the action. Karanam, translated here as the instruments, or the various senses. Pratapidam, various kinds. Vividasya, pratapcheshta, and the various separate kinds of endeavors, like the way you do it, 
you put your heart into it or not, or how do you pay attention, or are you persistent, just how you, what, what do you do? If you go to a big city to make money, and then you sort of sit around and sleep all day, or do something else, it, it won't happen. So, it also depends upon the endeavor itself, and then the fifth one, Krishna says, is daiva, destiny, or, actually that's not really, well, you could translate it that way. Uh, Prabhupada translated the Supreme. The word Daiva comes from the Sanskrit word Deva. Deva means God in Sanskrit. And it is cognate with the English word divine. We have the English word divine, which is related to the word Deva or Divya. So, from the word Deva, Daiva, which means something like the power of God or destiny, providence, the will of heaven, however you want to translate it. So now, there are these five factors. And then Krishna concludes that whatever action is undertaken, uh, whatever, action, whatever action a person undertakes with the body, speech, and mind, whether the action is right or wrong, uh, fair or unfair, well, you know, prudent or imprudent, whatever the action may be, these are the five causes uh, of the action. So now, in the next verse, Krishna sort of gets to the point why he's analyzing action in this way. He says, Chandraivam Siti Kartara Atmanam Kivalam Dutam Pashyatya Kritabhuti Twa Nasa Pashyati Durmati. Shabbat translates it, therefore one who thinks oneself the only doer, not considering the five factors, is certainly not very intelligent and cannot see things as they are. Prabhupada. Uh, uh, gives us a short purport to that verse. A foolish person cannot understand that the super soul is sitting as a friend within, in the heart, and conducting one's actions. Although the material causes are the place, the worker, the endeavor, and the senses, the final cause is the supreme, the personality of Godhead. Therefore, one should not see only the four material causes, but the supreme, efficient cause as well. One who does not see the supreme thinks oneself to be the doer. So, yes, as Prabhupada said, things being thus, literally, thus, be, thus being the case, Krishna says, one who, because literally their intelligence is not made of kritabhuti, I mean, this is sort of an idiomatic expression in Sanskrit, that their intelligence is not formed, it's not developed. I think developed is probably the best way to translate this. Akrita, undeveloped. Because of their undeveloped intelligence, Akrita Bhuti Twa, the person does not see. The person is durmati, which literally just sort of means uh, bad brain. They're just, they're just not thinking. They're just not thinking at all. And because the person sees themselves as the only cause, like, I can do this. Politicians make speeches like that, like, we're Americans, we can do anything. <coughs> okay. 
tell that to Detroit. So, and then Krishna concludes this by saying, Yasya, Nahangritopado, Bhutya Yasya Nalipyate, Kapati Saimalokana Hantinalipyate. So, one, literally, one whose existence, one whose nature, is not, well, literally, false egoed. It's a very interesting grammatical thing in a sense, it's very hungry. Anyway, it's hard to One whose, uh, whose nature, whose state of existence has not been egoed, in a sense, has not been uh, uh, contaminated by a, a, an illusory, an illusory self-centeredness. And one whose discernment, intelligence, is not contaminated, even killing these uh, imaloka, uh, killing people. Now, of course, this is an instruction for Shepherds. It doesn't mean that if you're enlightened, you can go out in the street and shoot people. That's not the idea here. Arjun was a professional warrior, and he had to defend, among other things, a constitutional government. After all, if there was an attempt to usurp the American government and to suspend the Constitution, most people in this country would think, well, constitutional government's worth fighting for. I mean, most people wouldn't say, well, you know, if they want the government that bad, that doesn't happen. Most people wouldn't say that. Actually, that's interesting. That's really American thing. I was in Italy one time giving a lecture, and because I grew up in this country, I said, uh, well, just like, I was giving the example, just like any, you know, anyone here in this country, if, you know, if there was some real issue like that, they'd, they'd be willing to go out and fight. And then in the back of a few Italians said, <laughs> so I guess it's make love, not war, uh, in different parts of the world, but... Anyway, so Arjun was fighting for a right cause, and Krishna speaking to him as a warrior. And this is not a uh, justification for sort of do-it-yourself serial killing. So Krishna says such a person uh, does not really kill and is not entangled. Um, so these are... These are psychological statements because what Krishna is talking about here is uh, different states of consciousness. And uh, I sometimes make the distinction between philosophical atheism and psychological atheism. A, uh, in other words, a person can be a philosophical theist. If someone asks you, what is your philosophy, it may turn out that your philosophy is that there is a God or that God is Krishna or whatever, depending on one's view. But uh, there's something like the distinction that Prabhupada makes and it's found in the Gita between Jnana and Vijnana. Or uh, knowledge as something you agree to or believe in in contrast to Vigyana is something you've actually realized, something you experience, something you can see. And so, someone may believe out of piety or goodwill or simply because everybody else around them is doing it. One may believe or one may think they believe in God, 
Krishna. However, uh, in our day-to-day lives, in our minute-to-minute life, we may actually be self-centered. We may actually be self-centered. So, in fact, we could uh, go for quite some time and not really have an explicit, powerful thought of Krishna. And we all get entangled in our day-to-day lives. And so, on a psychological level, on a cognitive level, we may actually be self-centered. Kurtzfeldt points out, we may have the generosity to extend our egoism to a small select group, like my family is the center of reality, or my community is the center of reality, or, or my country nationalism. So, uh, there really is a fact of the matter. In other words, something really is the center of reality. It's not just psychologically up for grabs. Like whatever we happen to think at any given moment is most important, is most important, because that's what I believe, that's what I feel. There is a uh, very interesting relationship in the uh, current degradation of the world. There's a very interesting relationship between consumerism and philosophy, or you might say the death of philosophy. I mean, I don't know if it's really dead, but it's... uh, it's an old age home, at least, in Western culture. And that is, if, if, you, if you think of the psychology of consumerism, where basically uh, you flatter the public, hoping they will purchase your product and fatten your bank account. That's, consumerism means that you, so, so you flatter. It's like, you know, you're the greatest, you're wonderful. If you smoke this cigarette, if you drink this liquor, if you buy this house, if you drive this car, you will be the sexiest thing, I don't know, since the Tila the Hunt or something. So, you'll be sexy, and you'll be powerful, and uh, you'll just be an incredibly fantastic person if you buy my product or service. And the customer is always right. When I was a kid, my father owned a small chain of stores. And uh, sometimes I would help him in the stores. And uh, one of the first things he taught me, very seriously, is the customer's always right. You have to treat the customers properly. And you don't contradict the customer as long as they're not trying to steal something or whatever. So, I mean, that mentality, that consumer mentality, it's like, if you prefer this car, if someone else prefers another car, what you prefer is what you prefer. Maybe, you know, never mind consumer report. It's like if that's what you want and you pay for it, that's your car. And you don't care what someone else does. So philosophy, philosophy has become another consumer product. In other words, if that works for you, okay, maybe that car didn't get the best consumer report rating, but if it makes you feel good, if that's the car you want, then hey, buy that car. Or if you go to a restaurant, that's the food you like. That's the movie you want to see. I think that movie stinks, but if you like it, you know, it's your life, and go to see that movie. And so the nature of personal preference is, there's all, consumerism is a very, very subjective world, because the, pur- the purpose of purchasing a product is to feel good. So if your product makes you feel good, that's the only objective truth in the product. I mean, of course, we can rate products in terms of their how long they last and how efficiently they do what they're supposed to do. But ultimately, 
beyond those objective criteria, ultimately, if you like it, then the world will go to hell because you like it. And it's true for you because you like it. Like, I like this house. Maybe you don't like it, but I like it, so it's true for me because I like it. And so consumerism has become the overwhelming, overwhelmingly has become the uh, standard psychology. And philosophy is simply another consumer product. Therefore, if a certain philosophy makes you feel good, then it's true for you as much as if you like this movie better than that movie, then this movie is true for you. Or if you prefer that neighborhood, or this car, or that computer, or that woman, or that man. It's like whatever, you know, you, well, oh, you fell in love with him. Okay, well, you know, you feel happy about that relationship. So, so philosophy is just, philosophy is not about, at the present time, for most people, it's not about finding an, an objective truth in the world, it's about making yourself feel intellectually good. It's about feeling good, philosophically. And so if a particular philosophy makes you feel good, it is true for you. And there's no other uh, reliable or significant sense of the word true. And the only limitations on philosophy are, uh, you could say, social and criminological. Like if your philosophy is that uh, it's good to steal from other people, then uh, even, though, even though that philosophy makes you feel good about yourself, uh, society will punish you because it's just a socially damaging philosophy. So that's practical. Against the pragmatic, it's not about, it's not true because it bothers us, just as you, a philosophy is true for you because it makes you feel good, so if a particular philosophy makes society feel bad about itself, and if society feels bad enough, then your philosophy will be punished. If society feels bad enough about it. People may think it's obnoxious, but that, for example, you can walk down the street sticking your tongue out at people, uh, but it's not illegal, it's just obnoxious. But if you walk down the street pushing people, then that's illegal. So it just depends on you know, how bad society feels about something. But again, it's about people's feelings or collective feelings. And so, the very notion that there is a truth, capital T, there's an objective truth to be discovered, uh, is almost vanishing. Those of us who are uh, older than other people, not that they're old, we're just older. I mean, even if you're nine, you're older than some people, right? So, uh, Actually, it's the nature of my generation that whatever age we are, that's the normal age to be. And everyone else is either too young or too old. So, um, so for those of us that are previous generation, you know, more mature generation, uh, we grew up at a time when uh, the notion of truth with a capital T, like searching for the truth, now, the very notion is sort of out of favor. Philosophy, truth, is simply another consumer product. And especially so because if you suggest that some people's truths, assuming they're not socially damaging and proscribed by law, 
that if you suggest that someone's truth is less true than someone else's truth, tr- uh, you may be doing the most rude and socially uh, obnoxious thing of all, and that is threatening someone's self-esteem. You may actually be threatening someone's self-esteem, and that's like the most unkind thing anyone could possibly do. I mean, this country is so sensitive to self-esteem that we don't even use uh, offensive terms anymore, like junior college. Because that might imply that a junior college is somehow less valid than a senior college or a junior high school. It's now middle school. When I was young, that probably suggests why there are so many emotionally damaged people in the world because of terms like junior high school and junior college. Anyway, um, actually they, they did an interesting study in California, which was sort of like the world headquarters for the self-esteem movement. And the self-esteem movement was especially uh, vibrant in public schools. And the teachers started avoiding very damaging Statements such as telling a student that anything a student said or wrote or did was bad or wrong. You know, what you're saying is not bad or wrong, but you might consider looking at it this way. And so what happened is they produced all these graduates, uh, many of whom were functionally illiterate, but they produced all these graduates who um, thought the world of themselves and then went out into the real world and collided with reality because when they got a job, they assumed that nothing that they ever did on the job could possibly be bad or wrong. But as we know, in real jobs, uh, you can do bad and wrong things and get fired, if not arrested. So, anyway, what they found is that they were uh, producing people who thought very highly of themselves and were dysfunctional in the real world. And completely in illusion about their actual abilities and limitations. So, it's not that we want to have a, an oppressive, uh, arrogant society of sort of like social or intellectual Darwinism. Well, we've just gone through eight years of that, but not the intellectual part, just the, the economic part. So, but the idea is that um, there really is a truth in the world. That's that's what will be claimed. There really is an objective truth in the world. And uh, there has been, if you study the history of Western philosophy, there was actually a, an explicit uh, intentional attack on metaphysics. Physics, you know, that's the material world, physical things. Metaphysics means meta, Greek means beyond, that which is beyond the physical. So things like God and the soul are metaphysical concepts. Or things like justice, because you can't, you can't, you know, go to a store and buy a shrink wrap justice and take it home and put it on your counter. There's no, there's no physical thing which is a justice. And so when you say justice is done, if you say that, you know, what does that mean, justice was done? Or, or you could say beauty. Beauty is metaphysical. You can't mathematically prove that something is more beautiful than something else. If you can actually hang in there for a little more philosophy. Uh, 
I'm going to explain one more point. There was a sort of a, um, a very irreverent Scottish philosopher in the last part of the 18th century named David Hume, who, once he came out against the idea of God, stopped being invited to parties in the United Kingdom. But he was very famous and very influential in the history of Western philosophy. And the basic point he made, which is relevant to those of us who are interested in spirituality, I'd say the most important point he made was that you cannot derive, and I'll explain what I mean, you cannot derive a metaphysical fact, logically, from a physical fact. I'll give you an example of this. Let's say someone breaks into your house and, and steals your pet rock or something and runs away with it. And so from your point of view, that was immoral, that person or, or stole something, your car or whatever, and you forgot to insure it or something. So, now from your point of view, that was unjust, that was unfair, that was criminal. But now if you study that behavior, let's say if someone broke into your car or garage and stole your car, if you, you can describe that behavior physiologically, you can describe it you know, historically, you can talk about the physical facts, the present fact uh, people involved in criminal investigation wouldn't actually be very concerned with getting the physical facts very clear. What time did the person come? Uh, how did the person break in? What are their fingerprints that they left in? And so on. So there are the physical facts of that robbery. But the metaphysical fact that it was wrong, it was wrong, it was bad, it was immoral, it was criminal. The metaphysical fact, the point that you made is, if you study that robbery, you know, the garage, the fingerprints, study everything, the skid marks from the expensive tennis shoes of the thief as the, as the thief pivoted and ran out of the garage. So the, the point is, if you study all the facts of the matter, where is the wrongness? Where is the wrongness? And Hume said, logically, you cannot take a set of physical facts and simply prove a metaphysical fact, namely the wrongness of that behavior or the rightness of behavior. Let's say one of your neighbors saw the person stealing your car, tackled the thief, and, you know, saved your car. So that, that was an heroic thing to do. So, or saving a child who was being abducted. So if you study the facts, where do you get the rightness and wrongness? Where does that come from? And what, how do you know that there really is such a thing? Now, if we take the evolutionary perspective on it, the sort of the hardcore, no-nonsense, materialistic perspective, uh, the reason we think thievery and rape and murder, the reason we think these things are wrong, the reason we believe they're wrong, is because we're genetically programmed to think that way. And uh, why are we genetically programmed that way? Because Homo sapiens who somehow, by some mutational accident, got genes like that, they tended to survive more because they had the ability to form functional societies and, and police departments and things like that. And because they rewarded virtue and punished vice, they survived more efficiently and therefore simply an accidental genetic configuration which made people in a state of delusion, 
made them believe that certain things are right or wrong. They're really not, because there are, there are only physical facts. There are no metaphysical facts that really exist. Uh, therefore, our sense that anything is, our sense that it's, it's wrong, let's say, to harm an innocent child, is simply a psychological state based on a genetic accident. And that's all it is. There's no such thing as a wrong act. It is not actually wrong to harm innocent people, even in the most horrible ways. That's not actually bad. We are simply, uh, it's simply, we are genetically programmed to have certain subjective feelings. And that's all that it means to say something's right or wrong. That's all that it means. It's just a genetic accident which produced a subjective emotional state. There's no rightness and wrongness out there in the real world. Now, as you can probably guess by the, from the way I'm dressed, I don't believe that. Um, in fact, I think that's absurd. However, that is the... Because one of the advantages of living in almost what you might call a philosophically brain-dead century is that no one connects the dots and no one realizes that the science we teach in schools totally contradicts uh, the moral principles we also teach. And, and they're actually mutually uh, incompatible. They can't both be true. They cannot both be true. I'm not saying genetics is not true. I'm not saying psychology is not true. But if we say, if we say that when we call an act bad, like it's bad, let's say, to harm an innocent child, when we say that's evil or bad, uh, there certainly is a genetic reality, there is a neurological reality, but there's more. There's a, there's, there's a higher reality, which is that it's really bad. Now, if it's really bad, if it's really bad to harm an innocent child, what that means is that in the universe that we live in, there actually more, there's more than one dimension. There's certainly a physical dimension, but it means there actually is another real dimension in this universe, on this planet, which is not physical and uh, which is not accessible to empirical science. Now, uh, some people always knew this. An example of one person that always knew this, uh, or at least knew it when he was old enough to uh, you know, think about things like this, is, uh, one example is Thomas Jefferson. One example is Thomas Jefferson, who gave a actually a serious philosophical argument in a document called the Declaration of Independence. Now, most people don't really read it that carefully, but actually Jefferson was highly educated and who actually was lived at the same time as David Hume, who you know I just talked about the. Scottish philosopher that stopped being invited to parties when he came out of the closet as an agnostic or atheist. Um, Jefferson actually lived at the same time, and Jefferson knew about his argument. And that's why he put certain explicit philosophical language in the Declaration of Independence, such as, uh, we hold the truth to be self-evident that all people, I will correct his gender bias, he said, oh man. So he said, we hold these truths to be self-evident. First of all, self-evident is a technical philosophical term. 
he wasn't just like trying to be poetic. He uses an explicit technical philosophical term for Western philosophy. The truth is self-evident when it proves itself, and therefore it doesn't require any proof outside of itself, and therefore cannot be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. That's what he was doing, actually. So, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal, not just born equal. Jefferson did not claim that we are, for example, Jimmy Carter, who was, I think, far less philosophical than Thomas Jefferson, uh, said that we have human rights. He popularized the human rights movement. In other words, because you are physiologically human, you have rights. Hume, the philosopher Hume, could just say, okay, let's look at the human physiology. Where do you see the rights? I mean, does it come out of your one of your vital organs, one of your limbs? Is it your... I mean, where is it? Where is the right in the human anatomy? So the argument that because you're a human being, you have rights, is basically not a philosophical argument at all. It's, 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 it's sort of a dogmatic claim. Whereas what Jefferson says, he said that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all people are created equal, endowed by the Creator with certain inalienable rights. Endowed by the Creator. And they are inalienable, that means no one can take them away from you, uh, because it comes from the highest authority. If the federal constitution gives you certain rights, the state cannot take it away. For example, the federal constitution, well, the Bill of Rights, uh, gives us freedom of speech within certain parameters, and therefore state government cannot take away that freedom of speech. In fact, that's what the Supreme Court does, among other things they do, is that they look for contradictions between federal and state law. So if the constitution guarantees you certain rights, the state cannot take it away. Similarly, if the Creator guarantees you certain rights, no earthly monarch or political leader can take it away. That was the whole point. The rights come from the Creator. So therefore, Jefferson claimed that a metaphysical fact, namely our rights, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that these metaphysical facts come from a higher metaphysical fact, namely a beneficent, uh, benevolent Creator who gave us those rights. So, uh, whether or not someone agrees with Jefferson, he's philosophically consistent. And actually uh, addressed the objection of Hume by saying there are metaphysical facts. Now, if you kill the goose that laid the golden political system, if you take away the creator, how do you prove that we have rights? How are you going to demonstrate logically, if logic matters to you, if it if you hold as a positive value having a reasonable take on life, how do you show that we have rights if there's no source of those rights? Then it just becomes mob rule. If you get enough people together and they declare that we're going to have rights and if anyone else tries to stop us, you know, we'll fight them, then sure, it's just then the source of our rights becomes simply the law of the jungle. Might makes right. Because there's more people who believe in the rights that don't believe in them, and because they have the preponderance of military power, therefore we have rights. The rights simply become a, uh, a product of power. Might makes right. Without a creator, it's just, might, it's just the law of the jungle. Which works. I mean, the jungle is functional in some way. But 
it's not really a justification. So if something comes along, let's say, with more power and takes your rights away, you can't really say that that's wrong. All you can say is, hey, we lost. They have more firepower. So people, of course, thinking is really kind of like not a very popular thing these days. Because, I mean, for one thing, it's like take a boat on the water. If a boat goes very fast on the water, it begins to hydroplane. And so uh, life goes so fast, life has been so accelerated today that this country and most others, you could say, is intellectually hydroplaning. And we just skim the surface and everything. So, and then, like during the election campaign, uh, Obama eventually won. At one point, he committed a real blunder, and that is he, he said something which could not be fit onto a bumper sticker. And he committed the sin of actually trying to reason with the audience he was speaking to, rather than just giving them sound bites, and uh, that was considered to be dangerous to his prospects. So, life goes so fast nowadays, it's like the battle of the sound bites, because people can't... And, and if you look at the average... Uh, amount of time on a typical television program that the camera stays focused on one scene before the camera angle shifts or you go to another scene like it's gone something like I forget it used to be something like 10 seconds whatever now it's down to like like a second or one and a half seconds or something and, and, and if you I know myself that I did actually I did kill my TV set but I let it die a natural death many many years ago decades ago so thing is, uh, if you just watch the images, they, they go so fast, and so why do people have attention deficit disorder? It's like, is that a serious question? I have a, uh, actually a disciple of mine, a very lovely, sweet young lady who was a member of the LA Police Department, and uh, even had to shoot a bad guy, justifiably, but anyway, she, uh, because she's sort of rising in the ranks of the LAPD, and so she... Um, she attended a lecture, a criminology lecture, in which a uh, scholar pointed out that uh, after the proliferation of television in America in the 50s, the murder rate actually doubled in every major city. The murder rate doubled in every major city. So life goes so quickly, and it's so... Anyway, you all, I mean, I'm talking about all this, that you can say a lot about all these things. So that people literally are just hydroplaning. It's, it's, it's physiologically impossible for most people to think deeply about anything. It's physiologically impossible. It's like you're rushing, you know, and you're late, and someone says, hey, can I talk to you about something I've been thinking about? And now I can't talk, now I'm in a hurry. I can't think about that. So... Life, just normal life, is so accelerated, it has become physiologically impossible for most people, most of the time, to think deeply about anything. Well, it's a great millennium. So, and we, of course, our product, the fine product of service we are offering, is uh, Krishna consciousness. It is a, it's a very ancient and powerful method of, of purifying consciousness. If, if we're physically sick and we are not suicidal or stupid, uh, we try to heal ourselves. We try to get better. And if someone in our family, if a loved one or anyone we care about, has some health problem, we become very concerned to see that it's taken care of properly. So, I mean, our bodies can become sick, our minds can become sick. That's also a real bummer. When your mind is sick, 
And, uh, but what, and, and what about when our soul is sick? I mean, that's the worst possible thing. Because if your soul is healthy, if you as an eternal spiritual being are healthy and powerful and vibrant, then whatever other madness is going on in the world, you can, you know, you can get through it. But when the soul is sick, then it's, um, it's, it's really the most serious problem of all. And so Krishna consciousness is very simple. It's just meant to make people well, spiritually. And uh, at, at the present time, I'm, I'm teaching a course, actually, at the University of Florida, the History of Indian Religions. And, um, and as I pointed out on the first day of the course, because India is such a big country, and it's always had a lot of smart people, and there's always been, actually, going back to the earliest history, religious freedom. It was very historically precocious. Actually, you can go back thousands and thousands of years, there was actually freedom of speech and religion in India. So you have this combination of a lot of people, a lot of freedom, and a lot of intelligence. You get an unlimited variety of approaches to religious life. And so in that sense, in India, you can really observe everything because of the freedom. You know, they reached the critical mass in terms of demographics and that they were smart and religiously inclined. So you can really see everything there. And what I find amazing, just on a personal level, is all the different ways that people try to weasel out of what ultimately are obvious facts, such as that we're persons. We really are personal. And that's not just an existential accident or mistake or this type of illusion we have to be freed from. To be a person makes freedom possible. Individual freedom and creativity and, and love because love is a free act. You have to choose or, or you know, you freely love someone. You can't be coerced into loving. And then you know, it really gets a different name that you can find in some kind of, you know, textbook on psychopathology. But, I mean, real love is a free act. And so, if you're not a person, you really don't have the possibility of loving or freedom, or creating, because you're not a person. I mean, some people said there is no there is no self, there is no person, or we just have to merge into some type of corporate radiance. The way I describe it, describe it. It's um, I mean, personally, no, thank you. I'm, I'm going to skip that one. I don't want to merge into anything. I, I mean, I actually am very happy being myself, and I want to improve myself. I certainly want to do better and, and be more enlightened than I am. But the basic fact of being a free, individual, conscious person, capable of loving, capable of creating, I think it's a great thing. It's the best thing since, you know, sliced or unsliced bread. And so, and all the different ways in which certain philosophers who maybe had too much time in their hands try to avoid that simple fact that we are individual, free persons. And the only problem is we're just not doing it right. Personal existence, I mean. And if we do it right, we will be infinitely happy and infinitely wise. Or the fact that the, I mean, the universe is a universe of art. You can look anywhere. If you, look, if you pay attention anywhere, water crystals, snowflakes, uh, the species of life, I mean, anything, just look anywhere at the sounds that crickets make. When they, when they take the sounds that cricket make, crickets make and slow the sound down, so that the speed of the sound is, is as the same ratio to a cricket's life that our music has to our life. It actually sounds like Gregorian chants. I've actually heard it. it it's, uh, well, I guess if I was younger, I would say it's freaky. So, 
But if you look anywhere, if you look anywhere, we live in a universe of art. The universe is not merely functional. It's, it's infinitely artistic. There is an objective moral system. And uh, because no matter what people claim their philosophy is, almost everyone except the most perverse of people really feels very strongly at the deepest level that some things are truly right and some things are truly wrong. Which means there is an objective metaphysical dimension to reality which governs governs the physical dimension. In India, of course, they have a sophisticated notion of the law of karma. And out of the Middle East came a, a notion of where all of for all of karma is, I think, sort of hyper-condensed into one lifetime, basically. It uh, didn't work philosophically. That's another issue, the problem of evil. So, but there is uh, this metaphysical dimension. So if the metaphysical dimension is real, it, it, that means that, what else is in that metaphysical dimension? If there is a real metaphysical dimension, what other items are in there? Well, there's souls, and, there, and there's God. So, and that, that really is the best, most reasonable explanation. Sometimes uh, atheists give uh, sort of pathetic arguments like uh, that's just a crutch, that, that you think there's a God to make yourself feel good. Well, frankly, from a materialistic point of view, it makes people feel much better to think that I'm God. And so atheism is, is I think, the most obvious vanity. I mean, the claim that there's nothing in the universe greater than me. I mean, how's that for a psychological trick? Or they say, you know, you, you claim as God because, because you have that need. Well, guess what? Most of our needs re- actually correspond to real objects in the world. You feel a need for water. Does that mean that you just imagine there's water? There's no real water in the world? You think there's water? You think you're drinking water just because you have a need? So these, uh, these arguments are kind of, like, you can't be serious about that argument. I mean, it's sort of a non-argument. Some people have a need to think they're the greatest, and, and for them, atheism is actually quite appealing. So, anyway, we got to I mean, that's that sort of, you know, we've done a lot of philosophy here, and I don't want to overdose you on philosophy, but Krishna consciousness is, uh, it's supremely reasonable. It's not just like, okay, this is the true prophecy, this is the true doctrine, and if you don't believe it, you know, you'll go to a world where everyone has terrible case of athlete's foot and there's no talcum powder. I mean, it's, I mean, the point is that what's amazing about the Bhagavad Gita is that there's no threat. According to Bhagavad Gita, spoken by Krishna, if you don't accept Krishna, what happens to you? Well, it, it depends on your behavior. If, you're, if you don't accept Krishna, you don't accept God, but you are morally virtuous, Krishna says you'll be materially elevated and be materially happy and wise. If you're virtuous. There's no threat. Because that's Sattvagun. Look at all the verses in the Gita regarding Sattvagun. What happens to someone in the mode of goodness? And also when Krishna says that those in the mode of goodness worship not God, but the demigods. So you could not accept or just not know about or not care about a supreme God and be materially wise, happy, and virtuous. 
according to Bhagavad Gita. So it's not coercion. It's not this sort of the silliness of, of God holding a gun to your head and saying, now love me. It's worse than a gun, actually. If it was only a gun, it's eternal torture. I mean, most people face eternal torture which would pull the trigger themselves on their own head. So, so there's no coercion. Krishna simply says, hey, I'm here, and if you love, you know, and, and I love you, and if you love me, you know, we can work something out. And if, I mean, Krishna is infinitely beautiful, he is infinitely attractive, and so it is in your rational self-interest to give yourself to God. And God commands us to do that, not because he has a self-esteem problem, which he's trying to address by, uh, you know, making horrible threats against people so that they'll surrender to him. But actually, Krishna wants us to accept him because we're part of Krishna and because it's actually, by far, the best possible thing we can do for ourselves. It's just like parents. Parents can teach children to love the family, not merely out of the parents' vanity, but because actually children are much happier and healthier as people if they can somehow appreciate their family, love their family. I mean, assuming the family is not psychotic and whatever, I mean, if someone has a reasonably decent family, it is actually much better for the child to love the family. It's, a, it's, it's in every way in the interest of the child to sincere, to, to feel profound gratitude toward those who gave their lives for the child in so many ways and so on. And so Krishna is inviting us to be sane and normal and decent and after all, if you say, I don't want God, I want something else, whatever else you want is just made by God. So it's like you're basically, we're like cosmic shoplifters. You know, it's in the sense that everything, like you say, you know, I'm not into God, I just want to enjoy nature and get a boat and ride on a lake. Well, guess what? You know, the lake is Krishna's energy, the boat is Krishna's energy. So if you love all the things that Krishna makes, and he's much more beautiful than the things he makes, why wouldn't you be attracted? If, if God really is infinitely beautiful, which he is, or he, he and she, it's, a, it's actually a divine couple, so if the absolute truth is actually infinitely attractive, there cannot be any objective reason to just go away from God. The reason must be psychological. If, because if something is really in your self-interest, and it's really what you like, but you reject it, the reason must be some type of emotional problem you have. And the problem we have is that we simply don't want to be little fish in a big pond. The good news is that if you accept Krishna, everyone gets their own pond. Because Krishna is in everyone's heart. So you actually get your own pond. If that's what you want. Anyway, there's something to say about Krishna, but we'll stop here. The, uh, Krishna also manifests as good food. So, thank you all very much. Hare Krishna.